Section 2 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Captain of the Pole Star, Part 2. 7.30 p.m. My deliberate opinion is that we are commanded by a madman. Nothing else can account for the extraordinary vagaries of Captain Craigie. It is fortunate that I have kept this journal of our voyage, as it will serve to justify us in case we have to put him under any sort of restraint, a step which I should only consent to as a last resource. Curiously enough, it was he himself who suggested lunacy, and not mere eccentricity, as the secret of his strange conduct. He was standing upon the bridge about an hour ago, peering as usual through his glass, while I was walking up and down the quarter-deck. The majority of the men were below at their tea, for the watches have not been regularly kept of late. Tired of walking, I leaned against the bulwarks and admired the mellow glow cast by the sinking sun upon the great ice-fields which surrounded us. I was suddenly aroused from the reverie into which I had fallen by a hoarse voice at my elbow, and, starting round, I found that the captain had descended and was standing by my side. He was staring out over the ice with an expression in which horror, surprise, and something approaching to joy were contending for the mastery. In spite of the cold, great drops of perspiration were coursing down his forehead, and he was evidently fearfully excited. His limbs twitched like those of a man upon the verge of an epileptic fit and the lines about his mouth were drawn and hard. Look, he gasped, seizing me by the wrist, but still keeping his eyes upon the distant ice and moving his head slowly in a horizontal direction, as if following some object which was moving across the field of vision. Look, there, man, there, between the hummocks, now coming out from behind that far one. You see her? You must see her. There, still flying from me, by God flying from me, and gone. He uttered the last two words in a whisper of concentrated agony, which shall never fade from my remembrance. Clinging to the ratlines, he endeavored to climb up upon the top of the bulwarks, as if in the hope of obtaining a last glance at the departing object. His strength was not equal to the attempt, however and he staggered back against the saloon skylights, where he leaned, panting and exhausted. His face was so livid that I expected him to become unconscious, so lost no time in leading him down the companion and stretching him upon one of the sofas in the cabin. I then poured him out some brandy which I held to his lips and which had a wonderful effect upon him, bringing the blood back into his white face and steadying his poor shaking limbs. He raised himself up upon his elbow, and looking round to see that we were alone, he beckoned to me to come and sit beside him. "'You saw it, didn't you?' he asked, still in the same subdued awesome tone, so foreign to the nature of the man. "'No, I saw nothing.' His head sank back again upon the cushions. "'No, he wouldn't, without the glass,' he murmured. "'He couldn't.' It was the glass that showed her to me, and then the eyes of love, the eyes of love. I say, Doc, don't 
Don't let the steward in. He'll think I'm mad. Just bolt the door, will you? I rose and did what he had commanded. He lay quiet for a while, lost in thought apparently, and then raised himself up upon his elbow again and asked for some more brandy. You don't think I am, do you, Doc? he asked, as I was putting the bottle back into the after-locker. Tell me now, as man to man, do you think that I am mad? I think you have something on your mind, I answered him, which is exciting you and doing you a good deal of harm. Right there, lad, he cried, his eyes sparkling from the effects of the brandy. Plenty on my mind, plenty. But I can work out the latitude and the longitude, and I can handle my sextant and manage my logarithms. You couldn't prove me mad in a court of law, could you now? It was curious to hear the man lying back and coolly arguing out the question of his own sanity. Perhaps not, I said, but I still think you would be wise to get home as soon as you can and settle down to a quiet life for a while. Go home, ah, he muttered with a sneer upon his face. One word for me and two for yourself, lad. Settle down with Flora, pretty little Flora. Are bad dreams signs of madness? Sometimes, I answered. What else? What would be the first symptoms? Pain in the head, noises in the ears, flashes before the eyes, delusions. Ah, what about them, he interrupted. What would you call a delusion? Seeing a thing which is not there is a delusion. But she was there, he groaned to himself, she was there. And rising, he unbolted the door and walked with slow and uncertain steps to his own cabin, where I have no doubt that he will remain until tomorrow morning. His system seems to have received a terrible shock, whatever it may have been that he imagined himself to have seen. The man becomes a greater mystery every day, though I fear that the solution which he has himself suggested is the correct one, and that his reason is affected. I do not think that a guilty conscience has anything to do with his behavior. The idea is a popular one among the officers and, I believe, the crew, but I have seen nothing to support it. He has not the air of a guilty man, but one who has had terrible usage at the hands of fortune, and who should be regarded as a martyr rather than a criminal. The wind is veering round to the south tonight. God help us if it blocks that narrow pass, which is our only road to safety, situated as we are on the edge of the main Arctic pack, or the barrier, as it is called by the whalers. Any wind from the north has the effect of shredding out the ice around us and allowing our escape, while a wind from the south blows up all the loose ice behind us and hems us in between two packs. God help us, I say again. September 14th, Sunday, and a day of rest. My fears have been confirmed, and the thin strip of blue water has disappeared from the southward. Nothing but the great motionless ice fields around us, with their weird hummocks and fantastic pinnacles. There is a deathly silence over their wide expanse which is horrible. No lapping of the waves now, no cries of seagulls or straining of sails, but one deep universal silence in which the murmurs of the seamen and the creak of their boots upon the white shining deck seem discordant and out of place. Our only visitor 
was an arctic fox, a rare animal upon the pack, though common enough upon the land. He did not come near the ship, however, but after surveying us from a distance, fled rapidly across the ice. This was curious conduct, as they generally know nothing of man, and of being of an inquisitive nature, become so familiar that they are easily captured. Incredible as it may seem, even this little incident produced a bad effect upon the crew. Yon poor beastie, Ken's mare, ay, and sees mare, nor you nor me, was the comment of one of the leading harpooners, and the others nodded their acquiescence. It is vain to argue against such puerile superstition. They have made up their minds that there is a curse upon the ship, and nothing will ever persuade them to the contrary. The captain remained in seclusion all day, except for about half an hour in the afternoon, when he came out upon the quarter-deck. I observed that he kept his eye fixed upon the spot where the vision of yesterday had appeared, and was quite prepared for another outburst, but none such came. He did not seem to see me, although I was standing close beside him. Divine service was read as usual by the chief engineer. It is a curious thing that in whaling vessels the Church of England prayer book is always employed, although there is never a member of that church among either officers or crew. Our men are all Roman Catholics or Presbyterians, the former predominating. Since a ritual is used which is foreign to both, neither can complain that the others preferred to them, and they listen with all attention and devotion so that the system has something to recommend it. A glorious sunset which made the great fields of ice look like a lake of blood. I have never seen a finer and at the same time more weird effect. Wind is veering round. If it will blow twenty-four hours from the north, all will yet be well. September 15th. Today is Flora's birthday, dear lass. It is well that she cannot see her boy, as she used to call me, shut up among the ice fields with a crazy captain and a few weeks' provisions. No doubt she scans the shipping list in the Scotsman every morning to see if we are reported from Shetland. I have to set an example to the men and look cheery and unconcerned, but God knows my heart is very heavy at times. The thermometer is at nineteen Fahrenheit today. There is but little wind, and what there is comes from an unfavorable quarter. Captain is in an excellent humor. I think he imagines he has seen some other omen or vision, poor fellow, during the night, for he came into my room early in the morning, and stooping down over my bunk whispered, It wasn't a delusion, Doc. It's all right. After breakfast, he asked me to find out how much food was left, which the second mate and I proceeded to do. It is even less than we had expected. Forward, they have half a tank full of biscuits, three barrels of salt meat, and a very limited supply of coffee, beans, and sugar. In the afterhold and lockers, there are a good many luxuries, such as tinned salmon, soups, hairy coal, mutton, etc., but they will go a very short way among a crew of fifty men. There are two barrels of flour in the storeroom, and an unlimited supply of tobacco. Altogether there is about enough 
to keep the men on half rations for eighteen or twenty days, certainly not more. When we reported the state of things to the captain, he ordered all hands to be piped, and addressed them from the quarter-deck. I never saw him to better advantage, with his tall, well-knit figure and dark, animated face, he seemed a man born to command, and he discussed the situation in a cool, sailor-like way which showed that while appreciating the danger, he had an eye for every loophole of escape. "'My lads,' he said, "'no doubt you think I brought you into this fix, if it is a fix, and maybe some of you feel bitter against me on account of it. But you must remember that for many a season no ship that comes to the country has brought in as much oil money as the old Pole Star, and every one of you has had a share of it. You can leave your wives behind you in comfort, while other poor fellows come back to find their lasses on the parish. If you want to thank me for the one, you have to thank me for the other, and we may call it quits. We've tried a bold venture before this and succeeded, so now that we've tried one and failed, we've no cause to cry about it. If the worst comes to the worst, we can make the land across the ice and lay in a stock of seals, which will keep us alive until the spring. It won't come to that, though, for you'll see the Scotch coast again before three weeks are out. At present, every man must go on half rations, share and share alike, and no favor to any. Keep up your hearts, and you'll pull through this as you've pulled through many a danger before. These few simple words of his had a wonderful effect upon the crew. His former unpopularity was forgotten, and the old harpooner, whom I have already mentioned for his superstition, let off three cheers, which were heartily joined in by all hands. September 16th. The wind has veered round to the north during the night, and the ice shows some symptoms of opening out. The men are in a good humor, in spite of the short allowance upon which they have been placed. Steam is kept up in the engine room, that there may be no delay should an opportunity for escape present itself. The captain is in exuberant spirits, though he still retains that wild, fey expression which I have already remarked upon. This burst of cheerfulness puzzles me more than his former gloom. I cannot understand it. I think I mentioned in an early part of this journal that one of his oddities is that he never permits any person to enter his cabin, but insists upon making his own bed, such as it is, and performing every other office for himself. To my surprise, he handed me the key today and requested me to go down there and take the time by his chronometer, while he measured the altitude of the sun at noon. It is a bare little room, containing a washing-stand and a few books, but little else in the way of luxury, except some pictures upon the walls. The majority of these are small, cheap oleographs. But there was one watercolor sketch of the head of a young lady which arrested my attention. It was evidently a portrait and not one of those fancy types of female beauty which sailors particularly affect. No artist could have evolved from his own mind such a curious mixture of character and weakness. The languid, dreamy eyes 
with their drooping lashes and the broad, low brow, unruffled by thought or care, were in strong contrast with the clean-cut, prominent jaw and the resolute set of the lower lip. Underneath it, in one of the corners, was written, M.B. at nineteen. That anyone in the short space of nineteen years of existence could develop such strength of will as was stamped upon her face seemed to me at the time to be well-nigh incredible. She must have been an extraordinary woman. Her features have thrown such a glamour over me that though I had but a fleeting glance at them, I could, were I a draftsman, reproduce them line for line upon this page of the journal. I wonder what part she has played in our captain's life. He has hung her picture at the end of his berth, so that his eyes continually rest upon it. Were he a less reserved man, I should make some remark upon the subject. Of the other things in his cabin, there was nothing worthy of mention. Uniform coats, a camp stool, small-looking glass, tobacco box, and numerous pipes, including an oriental hookah, which, by the by, gives some color to Mr. Milne's story about his participation in the war, though the connection may seem rather a distant one. 11.20 p.m. Captain has just gone to bed after a long and interesting conversation on general topics. When he chooses, he can be a most fascinating companion, being remarkably well-read and having the power of expressing his opinion forcibly without appearing to be dogmatic. I hate to have my intellectual toes trod upon. He spoke about the nature of the soul and sketched out the views of Aristotle and Plato upon the subject in a masterly manner. He seems to have a leaning for the metempsychosis and the doctrines of Pythagoras. In discussing them, we touched upon modern spiritualism, and I made some joking allusion to the impostures of Slade, upon which, to my surprise, he warned me most impressively against confusing the innocent with the guilty, and argued that it would be as logical to brand Christianity as an error because Judas, who professed that religion, was a villain. He shortly afterwards bade me good night and retired to his room. The wind is freshening up and blows steadily from the north. The nights are as dark now as they are in England. I hope tomorrow may set us free from our frozen fetters. End of section two.